Welcome to the River City Church Podcast and a message by our lead pastor, Jason Powers. Our prayer is that this message would inspire and encourage you, build your faith, and point you to the life-changing love of Jesus. May you enjoy the goodness of God as you follow him today. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the two of you. I'm glad that you're here. No, I'm happy to see all of you. If you are with us for the first time or the first time in a long time, uh, we are really glad that you're here. Man, there's a lot of people in here, which is, I, I, so uh, we're buying a building. We're in the process of, of moving, which is exciting. And so a big part of like uh, kind of the leadership role of this job is like to help people see like, oh, the need and how it's going to be like, we don't have to convince second service, a 10 o'clock service of that. So I uh, just want to real quick tell you about January 24th, which is two Tuesdays from now, we're going to have uh, kind of our, our annual big kind of vision as a church. What's God calling us to be about? Where's he, where did he lead us? What did we see him do in 2022? And what does that look like for 2023? We're going to be meeting, um, and it is currently called the Venue at Freiheit Village. Uh, it's a two-story, right at the end, there's an AstroTurk kind of greenway um, Avery's Park is right there. Los Montanos is right there. Big two-story building. That's the, pur- the property that we're currently under contract with, looking to purchase, praying about, uh, and we would love for you to see it. So January 24th at 6.30 right there, we will do that. I have to confess, I've been gone uh, for the last two weeks. I want to thank very much uh, Jennifer Adams and Johnny Griffiths, our uh, newest members of our teaching team for teaching and holding on. But I feel like um, you know, when you haven't seen somebody for a while and you're all excited to see him again and you just want to say all of the things and talk about all of those things, I kind of feel like that today, but I'm going to try to keep it kind of dialed in uh, to where we're going because we really are kind of starting something new today. As we kind of got to the end of the last year, I'm not a resolutions guy. I don't talk about it. Even the whole kind of word for a year thing, sometimes I kind of do, sometimes I kind of don't, but I really kind of try to just get a sense of what is what does it look like God is doing now in this season? What's going on in this word towards the end of the year that just kept coming back was reborn. And as a congregation and as a church, we really are right on the edge where a lot of things are changing and transitioning. And that can be nerve wracking and it can be uncomfortable to let go of things to see, uh, to tra- see transitions happen and to really wonder like, where does this end? And where's God in this? What does God look like? Well, we're going to kind of dance around that and get started that. But I was preparing this week, and I told, there's a guy from my past, a guy named Jason Noble. And I've told Jason's story before from a long time ago. Uh, when I graduated high school, I went to high school in San Antonio, and I went to Abilene Christian University. Um, but I didn't go at Abilene Christian University because of the Christian thing. I went to Abilene Christian University because of the baseball thing, because they had a baseball thing there. And I went and, uh, and played. The good news, there was Christian there stuff too. And I like to think that some of it got in there as I'm here at this. But... Uh, in the course of baseball, I met a guy called Jason Noble, and Jason was a guy from Houston, and externally, by looking at the externals of it, Jason and I could have been identical in almost every way. We looked the same. We both kind of grew up in churches. My grandfather was a pastor, and his grandfather was a pastor, and we had both grown up, and from the ex, you know, both at Abilene Christian University at the same time, playing baseball in the same place, hey, we could have been twins, but the external really was where the likeness ended. Jason was one of the best guys that I've ever known. And Jason was at Abilene Christian University for the Christian part. And so this is kind of where the story one night at Abilene Christian University, they have a curfew 
which I always felt was more like, you know, suggestion to be ignored than a rule to be breaking, right? So there's one day after um, curfew, right? And so I'm like tiptoeing in and I come up the stairs and there's Jason right there. And Jason is a good guy, doesn't break the rules, but also cool. You know what I mean? Like I knew he wasn't going to rat me out and he was going to turn me in. So we start talking about baseball because that's how you build a bridge and we're going. And so Jason brings me in his room and in his room, he's got this giant, like you've seen like the Bible, right? But it's like, it looks like it's like a family Bible, leather bound, wrapped like gold, all this. And it's just sitting there and it's open. And on a page, he's got this paper in the back. And at the top, it says prayer list. Obviously the guy had just been praying, but I looked, this, my name is on there <laughs> at the top, right? At the, <laughs> so I, and like, how do you be cool when you see that? So it's just like, so. And he's like, yeah. And he's laughing. And he goes, uh, he goes yeah, I've just, he's like, I just feel like God's been praying for you, which was weird. Like, I grew up in church a lot, and I believed in prayer, but it was really hard. It was mostly something that it was like the Christian blow-off, right? Like, you just tell me, hey, do you want to do something that you don't want to do? And I was like, well, let me pray about it. But what really that means is no. I'm going to go home and say no, right? That was kind of the, the, the prayer thing for me. But I didn't get that sense from Jason. Jason just said, he goes, you know what, Jason, uh, my prayer for you is just that you would know God like a friend. And that was such a powerful description to me because like I had thought of God as Lord and I knew like my theology was always, I was around, like I knew God is a friend was that idea, but it was different when he said it, right? Like I knew he meant it in a way that was different. Maybe not foreign, like maybe like I'd never heard of it, but it was different. And so despite all of these similarities between Jason and myself, Jason was clearly different. Jason was the kind of guy that catches a guy sneaking in, catches him at the top of the stairs sneaking in, and invites him in his room to comfort him and encourage him by telling him he's been praying for him to know God as a friend. And this, that was 20, I don't know, a lot, 20 a lot years ago. <laughs> and it made an impact. And it made a difference. And there was something in that that I've resonated in. So the question then is, how do you get that? How do you get what Jason has? How do you take two identical trajectories, right? Like you're in the middle and you're going and you go to church and we log hours and all that stuff. But there's a difference between Jason and myself. And a lot of this, this is the substance. This is the conversation about religion, right? Like this is what religion is. How do you get there? You can fake it, right? If you are a Buddhist, they will talk about removing the self, like removing the desires. And if you can get rid of that, then you will just be, you know, whatever. But I, listen, I've tried it. Wherever you go, there you are. It's like an onion, right? Like you keep peeling the layers of an onion and eventually it's just not anything, right? And so that's what Buddhism, Islam tells you that you have to obey these five pillars, right? Even Christianity, one of my favorite uh, pastors, a guy called John Ortberg, has this phrase called boundary marker spirituality, right? Where he says the way that we measure and talk about our spirituality is through these boundary marks, like number of verses read, right? Like minutes spent in quiet time during the week or, or attendance, all of these things that we can point to that just say, hey, this is how mature I am. This is what I look at. And the problem is, and like, I think that we kind of know, it's in our collective unconscious, if anything, we all know it, but we kind of don't know really what to do about it is those external things, as much as they sit around, they eventually just become weights, right? They just sit on us and they don't actually change the things that we do. And that's important because what we do is connected to what we believe, which is connected to 
what we experience, right? So our experience leads to our belief. For instance, if you lost a loved one tragically at a young age and it came out of nowhere and that's hard, that experience might cause you to believe something about God. It might cause you to believe that God is vindictive, that God is someone who is a taker. And so that experience leads to your belief, which then impacts your behavior. If you have ever had as a child, if you were formed by financial difficulties and trouble, that may cause you to believe that the world is a place of scarcity, which causes you to hoard, to be afraid of fear. So our experience impacts our belief, which impacts our behavior. And that's the thing about Jason Noble. Jason had experienced something that I hadn't. Jason, in a lot of the same places, the halls of, I mean, different congregations, different church, but the same, the same doctrine, the same idea that Jesus came and loves us and saved us and, and did all these things for us, that it somehow landed and impacted him differently in a different way than it impacted me. So how do we do that? The reality is that's really what religious Christianity is, is these Series and this system of behaviors that flow out of our belief, that flow out of ultimately our experience, if we can get those things in the right place. So, how do we begin? Where does this trajectory start with us? Well, I'm going to start in John chapter three, and this, it's a it's a common story because this search kind of really begins. It finds its home a lot in the people of Israel, right? From all the way back, if you go back to God's promise, there was a guy called Abram, right? And he was in the land of Ur and God came down and said, Abram, listen, I want you to do two things. God's Abram, look, trust me. Abram's like, got it. He says, leave everything and follow me. And Abram did it. And God said, hey, because you trusted me, I'm gonna include you in my covenant and, and really the whole world is gonna be blessed from you. But it really even goes beyond that. See, if you go back all the way to the beginning, I mean, to the beginning, the beginning, like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, what you find is God active in this space to create an environment where he and we could be together, where we could experience that. And you read about that in Genesis, and then you read in Exodus about God calling his people out of slavery and into the wilderness to teach them about being him. And you read in Leviticus about his law and how, about how to be right with him and about how to, how to follow him and how to enter into worship and into the people and into the temple. And you read the whole Old Testament, and then you come to Malachi, and Malachi, God says, listen, I'm coming back, and I'm going to return the hearts of the sons and the fathers and the mothers, and I'm coming back. And then you put a period at the end of Malachi, and then for 400 years, the people of God heard nothing. Not a whisper, not a prophet. And so all of a sudden, the people that were marked and defined by God's voice are seeking and searching. And so what they do is you go back to the law. You go back to the words that God gave his people on Sinai, and those words now become very important to who you are. And so a group of people rises up in this intertestamental period, the time between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. And this group, they say, listen, it's very important. God said the law is the most important. So they begin to get deep on the law and say, hey, look, here's what it says and here's how you follow it. And 600 different rules based on the law about this is how you keep and follow the law. And that group of people was called the Pharisees. 
And if you think about the Pharisees in the New Testament, what you see them doing and where they are, often they're what? They're fighting with Jesus about what? Often it's the Sabbath. And here's why. Because the Sabbath was not just a part of God's law that had a bunch of, you know, kind of nuance to it. It's part of the Big Ten, right? Like, like the Decalogue, God said the Ten Commandments on the stone. He says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so the Pharisees made a big deal out of that. Because what the Pharisees believed, that the secret to their problem was obedience. See, at the time that we read the New Testament, the land of the nation of Israel is occupied by the Roman Empire. It's a Roman outpost. And what the Pharisees believed, the reason that God had sent an occupying force, it was a kind of exile at home, if you will. The reason that God had sent an occupying force to Israel is because Israel had failed to keep the law as he intended, as God intended. And so the reason, if you really hate Rome, the secret to getting Rome out is keep the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. To not work, to, to not commit adultery, to keep the ten, to keep the whole law. And so every time that the Pharisees saw somebody breaking a, a rule, breaking a law, it was a mortal threat against not only them, but the nation of Israel. Because we can, you could never get to where God was trying to get you unless you just be better. You may have heard that at the churches where you came from. The only way to get God to do what you want him to do is to just be better than you are. The problem is like, how good do I have to be? That's Sarah. She's, she's good. Do I have to be Sarah good? Or do, I, do I can be? My, this is my friend Chris over here. Less good. <laughs> I'm sorry, bro. Like, it's pretty good. Still pretty good, right? So is it, is it Sarah or is it Chris? Now you start talking about Jesus, right? Perfect and sinless. I'd rather just shoot for Chris. And in fact, Chris, do you have like a deadbeat friend that I could aim for, right? That would be... <laughs> even better because if it's really about good if that's really what it's about then we have to nitpick on that and the problem is right if there's 600 things I'm really good at about two so I'm going to focus on these two and not these other 598 things right I'm just gonna be like no this is important like you got to do this so the Pharisees saw God's word his law his command and for them that was Everything. So that's the Pharisee. So now we enter the story. It's at the very beginning. Jesus is just kind of beginning, and we read this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, right? So now we know what we're talking about. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So Nicodemus is not only a Pharisee, he's an accomplished one. He is one who has risen up. He has authority. He has influence. He has power. He probably has great resource, great means, maybe some wealth. Nicodemus was a man in position. And so now listen, culture and society hasn't fundamentally changed. You think about how do people get to the top in their culture and in society today? You can be born into it. That's great. You can work hard for it, which means like long hours, overworking kind of, right? You can kind of, uh, you know, office politic your way kind of to the top. Whatever it means for you, as you think about getting to the top of the ladder, climbing the ladder, that's what Nicodemus had done. And he had not only done it, but he had done it well. He had done it with excellence in a religious culture. Nicodemus was a really good dude. And so here we find a guy, a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and he said, Rabbi, he calls him teacher. Nicodemus recognizes something in Jesus, which now the question is like, what's going on here? What's this encounter about? We had Jesus, who if we've been around church for a little bit, we know there's conflict, there's tension. Jesus and the Pharisees, like they kind of go at it. So we expect there may be kind of some fireworks going on, but 
But what's happening here? Why are they meeting at night? Like, did, is, is this scheduled? Did Nicodemus call for it? Was there like a sign that they had? What's the deal? All we know is Jesus and Nicodemus are meeting, and Nicodemus says, Rabbi, teacher. And notice how, what he says. We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, there is absolutely a little bit of flattery going on here. I, I read a commentary and I listened to a sermon on this by a guy called Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York. And he says what he thinks is going on here is they're trying to recruit. Right, Like the Pharisees are kind of the party in power, and all of a sudden they hear about this teacher, and the first sense is, yeah, never mind, forget him, he'll go away. But then after that, they start hearing about him, and he's like healing people, and he's like doing things, and it's, and it's working. So now the idea is, hey, let's go get him. You can't beat him, join him, right? So they go and they say, hey, something is going on. God, yeah, you, you are the man, right? And so they call him, hey, no one could do these things unless God is with him. And Jesus answers this. Listen, if, you're, if the Bible is intimidating to you, right, the danger can be you read these things and you think that it makes perfect, absolute, chronological sense to everybody else but you, right? If you're standing here talking, saying this, and Jesus says to you after what you just said, you would go, what? Listen, hey, we know you're a teacher. My God, you are the worst things that you do. And Jesus is like, yeah, uh, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. What? I just said you're like, you're, you're, he's like, yeah, you got to be just like born again. Part of the problem is like as we read this, we're so kind of comfortable with the idea of being born again, right? And it, and it brings um, positive, negative, good, bad, whatever. It kind of just brings this baggage with it, right? But it, it means something to us. And typically, I think what it means in our culture is a certain specific set of um, beliefs and ideas rooted in Scripture and, and the Bible, but largely expressed out in, out in culture, right? To be a born-again Christian is roughly the same thing as to say is to be an evangelical, which is, in broad terms, often co-opted by politics. That's not what Jesus meant. Jesus didn't mean, Nicodemus, you vote broadly conservative in your, in your politics, right? He's talking about something different. Now, I just, some of you have babies, little babies, and the blessing and the curse of babies is they can't do anything, like nothing, right? Like the blessing of that is they can't run away from you, right? Once they get older, your kids, they turn away. You can't hug them. You can't love on them. They're always running away. They start smelling funny. But when they're little, they can't run away. The downside of it is you just have to keep holding them and they never go away. And there's, there's all of that, right? Because when somebody gets born, you have to teach them how to walk. When someone gets born, you have to teach them how to talk. When someone gets born, you have to teach them how to interact. When someone gets born, you have to teach them how to spend money. When someone gets born, you have to teach them about family. You have to teach them how to eat. You have to teach them how to do all of those things. And it's really terrible. And it's really messy. And it's really hard. And it's really bad because I'm not good at those things. So how am I going to help somebody else be good at those things? And I just know that, that that's the system. And so now you have a guy who is winning at life by almost every metric that you can imagine. And now Jesus comes and says, yeah, you're playing the wrong game. You got to start all over. You got to learn how to walk again, how to talk again. Because see, the thing is, we were born into a world, you were born into a world that taught you how to walk. 
You were born into a world that taught you how to be. You were born into a world that taught you what wins and what loses and how to, how to get over and how to get above and how to get all that. And what Jesus says is, as important as that birth is, because, well, it makes you here, it, in, it includes you in the game, that whole system that raised you, that shaped you, that formed you, it's incompatible with the kingdom. It's insufficient. You can't politically, economically, socially, culturally win your way into the kingdom. It just doesn't work like that unless you've been born again. And Nicodemus is like freaking out. How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's room? And listen, like we know, like born again is, is part of our kind of lexicon. And If this was the first time you heard that, you're looking at Jesus like he's cracked. You're like, what? Man, I'm here to talk about like the works that you're doing. And you're talking about being born again. Do I, do I have to go back in, into my, my mother, right? And Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Let's listen, your physical body, this is flesh. You have to be born. Flesh is of flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And there's a lot of cool stuff that's going on. One of the cool things, kind of like side note right here, Jesus reinforces this idea that your physicality is really important. God did not create you to be some disembodied reality, right? God didn't create your physical body and flesh to just be thrown away and ignored and sloughed off. Listen, you're going to spend eternity with a body. And the body that you'll spend eternity with, with it'll be like Jesus's, right? Like, like we not look. We won't all be like carbon copy clones of Jesus. But when we read in the, you know, at the end of Jesus' life, when he comes back after the resurrection, like people didn't at first recognize him, and then they did. And so you're going to have physicality. And God, Jesus talks about this rebirth has a physical component to it, but it also has a spiritual component, right? It's not just the physical. Sure, you have to have a physical aspect, but there is a spiritual part of it that leads us and guides us. And so what Jesus comes to Nicodemus and says, yeah, are you willing to start over spiritually, even if that means a reset and a redo physically? Because what Jesus gives to Nicodemus, what Jesus gives to us is the idea that there is no new life without a new birth. When we read about born again, if I could do one thing over the first quarter maybe of this year or two years, I would recapture the idea of being born again and I would take it away from the news and I would take it away from pollsters and demographicticians or whatever they are that, that, that does that and I would bring it back to the church and I would r- remind people, I would remind the world, I would remind Christians that to be born again simply means to have a new quality and quantity of life. The quality and quantity of life that is new is eternal. It is eternal in duration, and it is eternal in quality. And so that's why losing your house when you're a child and believing that the world is a place of scarcity is fundamentally incompatible with the truth of the kingdom of God that says you're built for eternity and there will always be enough. And maybe not in that house, but somewhere. Maybe not with that car, but somewhere. And so being reborn, being a church that is reborn, being people that is reborn is about being a church and about a people where new life starts to spring up. And what I would say for you is that Jesus wants that for you today. And that can be kind of sketchy, right? Right? So let me give you kind of a, 
a, a look ahead. Starting next week for the next three or four weeks, we're going to look. Our series is called Blueprint. And the idea is we're going to go back, and I want, us to sh- I want to show us carefully. Oh, there it is. Look, I want to show us carefully but deliberately and intentionally the, the life that God created for you. Right, you go back to the very beginning of things, right, when things were new and they were brand new and nothing involved. You can see the creator's intent. And so my idea is, my, my thing is, like, I want to show in Genesis 1 God's design for your life to have this unbelievable order and visibility and beauty and, right, for him to just, like, hover over the chaos of your life and with a word bring light and order and abundance and fullness. That's God's desire for you. And so I really... I, I wrestled, like, do I want to preach this message at the front of this series or at the back of this series? And here's the reason I want to do it at the front, because I feel like if I talk to you about Genesis 1 and God's desire to bring order to your life and about Genesis 2 to show you God's design for work and for relationships and for you to find abundance and blessing, not just like, not at my desk with my head in a book, but in the world when I go out that. My problem is I'm afraid if I just tell you all of that, you'll think you can get there by tinkering around the edges. You'll think you can get there like by degrees a little bit at a time. And what Jesus says is unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom. And what I want to say is God's desire for your life. Jesus said everything else wants to take from you. It wants to kill your dreams. It wants to destroy everything. Jesus said, I come to give you life. And so the question in the new year is, is that what we want? Because I promise you, you can keep going. And I promise you, listen, I won't even be mad at you. Listen, if I run into you at Walmart, I'll give you a high five. We'll be good. It's fine. You can choose. What I want to tell you is God has more, better. And so, like, let's make a deal, okay? You get to choose the world that you create, right? Like, by the way that we behave and we believe and all that stuff. We get to live and we get to walk in. What we don't get to do is create a world that looks like us and then blame God when it doesn't look like God, right? Because that's what being reborn is. Those who are reborn, they don't just have different ideas about eternity. They don't just believe that we're going to die and be clouds someday, right? To be born again is to have new legs, to walk differently in the world, to see the future differently. It's to have new life. So what does that look like? Hit real quick. New life follows a person, not a program. And that is a problem for me because I want you to give me a list of rules that I can follow on my own, right? Instead, what Jesus has said is, I'll give you a spirit. I will take the spirit that is in you, right? And by spirit, think animating force, right? It is alive, it is part of you. It is dry. It drives your desires. It drives your wishes, your hope, all that. And what the death and resurrection of Jesus means is that he takes our old spirit that leads us our way and he gives us his spirit. Scripture says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in and is in resident in you. And so here's what that means. Like if you follow him, is you pray and you just go, Lord, lead me differently. What that means is he like actually will. He'll actually do that. But the problem is, if he's got a spirit in me, that means he's the boss. And that means that my role is, if, it, he, if it's his spirit in me, that means he's the leader. And I'm not, listen to, what he's, listen to what Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 8. He says, the wind blows where it will, where it wishes, 
and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so it's interesting here, this is where we lose a little bit in translation. I don't speak ancient Greek because I'm 21st century American, but um, I read, right, people that do. And so there's great um, clarity or there's cool things in the text. So the New Testament was written in Greek, right? So that word wind, it says the wind blows where it wishes. The Greek word for wind is the word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, and it means the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. But what's interesting is there's another word here at the end who is born of the Spirit, and the Greek word for spirit is the word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. So in Greek, the word wind is translated as pneuma, and the word pneuma is translated as spirit. And so Jesus, so this tells us a little bit about what's going on, right? You can imagine Nicodemus and Jesus are there, and it's probably a stormy night, a dark stormy night. The wind's blowing, and you look over, you've seen those like in a crowded place, like the little whirling, the leaves get caught up, and there's like a little cyclone of thing. You can imagine Jesus and Nicodemus, and he's talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is going, what are you talking about? And Jesus goes like, look, who makes that? You don't know where that comes from. You don't know where it's going. We can see what's happening. It stirs things up. It changes the order of the leaves. But you can't see where the wind's blowing. The wind orders follows another master. There's another order giver in the winds. And what he says is that's what it's like. He says when you invite the wind, the pneuma of God into your life, he becomes God. We then are followers of the spirit. And it will look different. We will walk differently and talk differently and be changed. Not all at once, not suddenly and in the twinkling of an eye yet, but slowly by degrees as we say yes to him and as we say yes to his grace and to his peace and to his love and to his goodness because Jesus didn't come to throw the rules away, right? I, I, I either want it to be all about the rules or I want it to be not about the rules, but Jesus said this, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. See, I think we kind of live in a, in a day and age. I, I love you. Forgive me when I say this. But I think we live in kind of a church culture in a day and an age where when we talk about spiritual discipline, about things like you need to read your Bible, right? You should go to church. You should give. You should fast. You should do all these things. That smacks when we talk about those things, kind of the instant response is like, ah, oh, that's legalism. No, it's not. It's health. When I tell my kids, eat your vegetables, that's not legalism. It's my desire for their goodness, Right? Jackson, you just can't eat chicken nuggets all day. That's not, you, you, you can't do that, right? Like it's, it's, I mean, you can, but it's going to be terrible for you. And it's the same thing for a Christian. You certainly can come to church every Sunday and never open your Bible, never serve somebody else, never give your time, never give your money or your injury. But I feel like you'll just walk around going, yeah, that Christianity is just this extra thing that I have to do on Sunday. And then when it gets hard, you know what you'll do? You'll go, well, that's terrible. I don't have any part of that. And listen, you haven't even tried it. Because what Jesus said is, listen, there's a new order. There's a new operating system out there, and it's at work, and you can have some of it. But you just can't get there. If you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. And so the question, Nicodemus, like, if you want to right, recruit me to your party, that's fine. But Nicodemus, the things that you said you saw, they aren't in your party if your way, Nicodemus, listen, if your way could do it, Nicodemus, you wouldn't be looking for me. Jesus didn't say the law, the prophets, the rules were bad. He just said they're not new life. He said you're not saved for rules. Does that make you nervous a little bit? So we've got rules, and they're good for us. Well, they're not how we're saved. And now we go, that's, that's what we do. So what do we do, right? The next thing, right, that we have to do, it's exciting. That new life, how do I say this? New life 
looks with faith, not with conventional wisdom. And this is a hard thing, like, because we can look at this and we go, yeah, check, yes, right, that's good, but not really, right? Did you know 100 years ago, conventional wisdom says when you come home after a really long, stressful day at work, the best thing that you can do to alleviate your stress, nine out of 10 doctors guarantee you, the best thing for your stress is to smoke camel cigarettes, right? That's dumb. That's not, that's not how that worked, right? You used to get a fever, they'd put a leech on you, right? And so conventional wisdom tells you all the wrong answers to the right questions. And so conventional wisdom says that you get to decide who you are. You create yourself. The world is your oyster. You define yourself who you are. The problem with that is it doesn't even acknowledge and recognize the fact that it was here before you and it'll be here after you. We say all the time here, I try to say it every week if I can, the mortality rate for the human race continues to hover right around 100%. You're going to leave, and you're going to leave everything. And that job that you've given your life to, the day after you die, they're going to replace you. My dad retired after 35 years working at the same place. They didn't close the business down, did they, when you left? They, they should have, right? They would have. Listen, I love you. I love you too much to let you think that your job defines you. I love you too much to let you think that the secret to your joy and your happiness is just one more good decision away. What I want to tell you is the life that God intended for you does not exist inside of you unless God puts it there. And it only bears fruit as we follow him, as we walk with him, as we look towards the future and we go, yeah, conventional wisdom says that I need to fight people to get ahead. But Jesus says, if you love your enemies, then you'll live forever. He says, if you don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear. See, conventional wisdom says you got to look the part, you got to talk the part, you got to be prettiest, you got to be the best. Jesus says, I see you, I created days for you, I love you, I know who you are, I will take care of you. Conventional wisdom says you got to have all your ducks in a row. you got to be not afraid of what's coming and what's going. you got to do that. You know what God says? God says, I formed. God says, I say to God, you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Listen to me. You think that thing about you is a mistake. You think that thing about you has no part in the kingdom of God. Now, let me be very clear. There are behaviors that you do that keep you from experiencing God. Your life is so full and racked with sin that if you could see it all, it would trouble you. The thing is, those aren't the rules. That's not the entry, right? Like we're going to get to heaven. There's going to be a big scale, right? And all the bad stuff. There's no scale. No scale. There is no scale. There is a cross and Jesus and he forgives. And what God says is, I put that thing in you. And it looks like weakness now, but it's sensitivity and sin has ruined it and marred it. And he wants the journey of discipleship is to clean it off, to dust it off, to polish it up and to make it new. I should just read this. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. This is the author talking to God about himself. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Listen, your eyes saw my unformed substance, that thing that you try to hide from the world so that nobody sees it, Father looks at it and just adores it. Just absolutely loves it. It's part of you. It's part of your design. It's part of your creation. The Father never looked at you in the mirror and wished you would shave an inch or two off your hips, sir. He even loves bald people. Hope, we hope, right, man. Woo, I'm betting on that one, right? 
You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days were formed for me when as yet not one of them. Listen, friend, I got to just tell you, like, you're not going through this alone. You're not facing the end of the world on your own. You haven't encountered anything that God doesn't want to meet you in and walk with you through. That difficult season, that time that you're facing, that thing that you're in the middle right now, God's not in the other sand. On the other side, go, man, I hope they make it. If she just gets through it to me, then everything will be fine. God's right there in it, and he's whispering in your ear. He's like, I'm right here. Keep going. We got this. And you're like this. White knuckled. I went to youth camp the last couple days. By the way, your kids are awesome. Side note, time out. Teenagers are hard. Listen, if you look them in the eyes and you say, I see you and I love you no matter what, you will have an unbelievable right to influence kids. Anyway. We went, and they had this climbing wall, right? And this crazy, amazing thing happens about two-thirds of the way up. People just stop because it's high, and it's hard, and it's scary, and it's dangerous, and they want to quit. But there's something at the top. There's something at the end that you go and you get through and you just, and if you can get it, then you can get there. And that's what, that's what this is like. It's hard. Following Jesus is hard, and it's difficult. But there's a reason. Okay. I got sidetracked, forgive me. Because you are what God created you to be. You are in this world that he created you to be in. And the way to follow him is by faith. And what that means is that things won't always look. And Jesus says this, John chapter 3, go in verse 14. And he tells another story that we're going to go look at. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So now I'm going to go back to the book of Numbers, which is right at the very kind of beginning, and there's this crazy kind of weird story, right? So the people of Israel had been led out of Egypt, and they were now wandering in the wilderness uh, for 40 years, and there's this account, okay? It says this, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden, and the people became uh, impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And if you'll allow me a little bit of poetic license, right? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and water and we love this worthless food, right? It was hard. They, it was hot. There was not enough. And they were mad and they were angry and they were frustrated and they were freaked out. In verse six, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. That's intense. Hey, Hey, listen, I haven't seen fiery serpents, but, but really, this is a group of people who had seen God split the Red Sea. These were a people who were under the cloud, the pillar of fire, and the cloud in the wilderness, and they doubted God's presence and God's goodness, and it was a slap in the face, right? So here's the question now. So now you've got fiery serpents in the camp, right? Imagine you've seen snakes on a plane, right? You've heard that's the idea, but with an entirely entire different group, right? So, um, so here we go. The Lord sent fiery serpents, verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. There we go. Now we're on the right track, right? We have sinned. Um, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Okay, let's talk about conventional wisdom. If you are in a camp and there are hundreds of fiery serpents in here, and I tell you, they're in this room right here, and I tell you, 
hold on, I'm going to start fashioning, fashioning a bronze snake. Your first thought is round them up and get them out, right? Like there's lots of things you should do. I went to uh, Abilene Christian, I went to college, uh, just about 40 miles down the road is a town called Sweetwater and they have a thing called the Rattlesnake Roundup and it is every bit as delightful as it sounds. They dig a big hole and throw more rattlesnakes than you ever want to know exist in that, in that hole, right? And so I know conventional wisdom would say if I fell in the hole and got bit by a snake, there were a lot of things I would do. I would suck the venom out. I would make a poultice. I would cry like a child, like an infant. Nowhere on the list of things that I would do immediately is make a bronze pole and look at it. It just doesn't seem to be related, does it? Do you know why are you hearing? Because listen, because God wanted to make sure that the Israelites knew that they weren't saved by their own wisdom. They weren't saved by their own smarts. They weren't saved by happen chance. That God wanted his people to know that they exist in his love, in his goodness, in his grace, and his provision. And so Jesus says, that's what I'm about. Because you know how we try to take care of our sins? We try to try real hard, right? Oh, I'm going to go. I'm going to get that, right? I wrote in my journal just the other day, my, I have an intention every day. My intention for this day, on, on, true story, my intention for this day is to not get offended and to respond with laughter when I do. I think Christians shouldn't get offended. I just think we, we should be um, tougher than that. True story, right, Lord, help me. I just, Lord, I don't want to be unoffendable and, and I, I just want to honor you and whatever. I, I kid you not, my kids walk by, say something, the whole thing. The ink is not dry on my page. And I'm like, wah, freaking out of my house. I'm like, so that's how that usually goes, right? Because I'm not strong. I don't have willpower. I have moments where I want to do the right thing, but as soon as I want to do something different, I do that thing instead. Because what I need is not more willpower. What I need is a different spirit. What you need, what we need, is to know that we were created for eternity. And if we could tap into that, if we could grab hold and grab onto that, everything would change. Then we wouldn't wrestle. Things would fall off. Do you know why? Because we know that God is good. But as it is, we run around and we scurry around trying to shake off these sins because we think that God is mad at us. Because if, just like the Pharisees, just like the Pharisees, we believe that if we don't behave, then God will never bless us. We believe that the reason my life is difficult is because God is mad at me. There's some sort of judgment over my life. And listen, I have to be very honest. If you're not trusted, if you don't believe that Jesus' death forgives you of your sins, then you're under it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You have to work really hard and you'll never get there. And I hope that doesn't happen to you, but you have to choose otherwise. To choose otherwise is to say, I believe that I've sinned and I need Jesus to forgive me. That's the bronze I look at Jesus, oh, Jesus is going to get it, good. And it changes everything, right? Listen, for God so loved you that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn you, but in order that you might be saved through him. And I like to read it with you so that you will know that he died for you. But that's not what the passage says. What the passage says is that he died for the world, died for the world, and you're a part of that. And we as a church 
are part of that. And as long as we are tied up and wrestled up with our own weaknesses and failures and sins and insecurity, as long as we are living only for ourselves, as long as we are doing only our thing, we'll never experience what he has for us. We can never be reborn. And that kingdom will always be somewhere out there that we walk up to people and just go, hey, you look pretty religious. You look different. What's going on? And we won't be able to identify it because we all go to church. We all have the same translation of the Bible. The difference is, have we been reborn, given new life, new hope? Jesus, like Nicodemus, we stand before you not really sure of all the things that are going on. And unfortunately, too often, we stand before you like Nicodemus, feeling like we have it all figured out. And so, Father, I pray that you would forgive me, and I pray that you would forgive us. And I pray, Father, that your church would be marked by new life. That for us, that suddenly in areas that seem dry and desolate and disordered will suddenly begin to bear fruit and bring life. I pray that we would notice. I pray that others would notice. And I pray that people would be drawn to your church as they see this new life. So forgive us for trying to earn it. Forgive us for trying to manipulate you with our behavior. May we simply gaze at you and follow you and be transformed. Jesus, transform our desires. Transform our identities. Transform all of these idols, these things that we cling to and hold to and hope in and set us free. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have called us together. Lead us and guide us this week. Bring us back safely next time. We ask in your name and for your glory. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. River City Church is all about experiencing and expressing God's love in our lives and community. And we hope that you've been able to experience that today. As grateful as I am that you've spent this time listening in this morning, this podcast is no substitute for full participation in a local church. I love it when River City people listen to other pastors, but it is those who show up week after week faithfully giving their support and time and resources that make all of this possible. If we can help you get connected to a local church, pray for you, or support you in any way, click the link in the description and let us know. If you'd like to financially support the ministry of River City, click the Give link on our website in the description. Don't forget to subscribe, and don't forget to share this with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. May the Lord bless and keep you in all grace and peace.